0: Okay, again, it's my privilege to be here, and uh, what I wanted to do is just share from the book of Ruth uh, to look at what I'm calling the first Christmas in Bethlehem, and uh, I think this will make sense after we get going. We're not looking at the birth of Jesus yet, but we're doing the backstory that gets us to that point. Uh, So turn with me, if you will, in the book of Ruth. It's in the Old Testament between Judges and Samuel, Uh, so... If you'll go there, if you have the same Bible that I have, it's on page 327. <laughs> All right, and uh, I'm just going to pray before we jump in here. Father, we, uh, we ask that you please speak to us in our hearts through your word that's powerful, uh, that convicts us, that encourages us, that challenges us, that really just moves us to worship. And I pray that our posture would be towards you one of humility One of worship as we see what you've done in history to bring salvation to us because of your grace. And we thank you through the Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, so the first Christmas in Bethlehem and looking at the book of Ruth. And I'm going to give a little bit of context here. And basically walk us very quickly through the book of Ruth and then connect that to the gospel of Matthew. Now the purpose of the book of Ruth is to show David as the legitimate king whose reign was established by God. And I'll share this with you kind of briefly. Uh, Ruth is this story that some have called it a romance of redemption. It's a story where a boy met girl. They, they get married. They have a child. But really, the purpose of the book shows up at the main end. There's this genealogy. In case you've ever wondered, why are they there? <laughs> There's a reason why they're there. And the genealogy in the end of the book of Ruth shows us the purpose of the book. In between the period when the judges ruled and then 1 Samuel where David becomes king, God was at work in history doing something. And so it shows us that God was at work in history to raise up the king of his choice. That's going to mean even more when we look at the backdrop in the book of Judges. So Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 says this. It says, It came about... In the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And I'll pause there for just a second and give you some backdrop. Uh, Israel as a nation had been given this, this law from God through Moses. And it gave them the stipulations of how they were supposed to live. And in this covenant, God said, if you obey me, I will bless you. I will make your crops to grow You know, everything will be great for you. I'll I'll cause one of you to put to flight a thousand of your enemies. I will chase them out with wasps and hornets and things like that. It'll be great. But he says, if you disobey me, I will curse you. And he talks about how they will plow their ground and it'll be like plowing metal, like bronze. Uh, You just can't hardly plow the ground. And the sky will be like brass because God won't let it rain and and they will look for you know abundant crop and there'll be very little. And so God was going to use this to let them know where they were at in their fellowship with him. They would know that if they were under the covenant curses, they were not walking with God. If they were under the blessings, they were walking with him. And of course they would know through his word whether they were walking with him or not. Well, it's interesting then when I'm when I'm putting a setting with this, Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 Says that this story happened in the days when the judges governed. That means it takes place under the Mosaic covenant, but it also gives us that key there. We're looking at the time period of the judges. All right, so I'll be brief here, but the book of Judges is characterized by this repetition of these cycles here. And <laughs> I don't know if you can read that. I can't. Uh, this is the problem. I'm I, I'm I'm far sighted, so I can use these up close. And so now, where do I get here? Uh, but the way this worked was Israel would do evil in the sight of the Lord, and God would allow their enemies to oppress them. And you read about this in Judges chapter 2. I'm just giving you the snapshot version. And when the enemies would oppress them, they would know like, wow, we're, we're out of God's will. And they would know that. They, they disobeyed the word of God. But it was like a wake-up call. Well, distressed Israel would call out for help. Oh, God, come to our rescue. And then God would raise up a judge. And that's what the judges did. This wasn't so much a judicial thing as it was a military thing. The judges would be provided by the Lord, they would rescue Israel, and God would grant a time of peace. But then they kind of forget about God because things are going good as far as they're concerned, and then they would sin, and then the whole thing would start over and over again. So that's the period of the book of Judges. And what the author of Judges does is he hints about the nature of the problem. It's a problem of morality, yes, But he also hints about what the possible solution might be. And and in essence, there are four times in the book of Judges where you get this phrase or something like this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And the result was everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So this is interesting. Judges chapter 17 verse 6, that's the phrase. In chapter 18 verse 1, in those days, there was no king in Israel. In chapter 19, verse 1, in those days, there was no king in Israel. In chapter 21, verse 25, when the book ends, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And you see what the author's doing? The author is kind of winking at you. And he's saying, like, do you see what the problem is? We need a king. We need a ruler. We need somebody who will shepherd God's people on God's behalf. And God was never against Israel having a king. He was against the wrong kind of king. That was the issue with King Saul. Deuteronomy 17 says that when you place a king over you, these are the ways that it should look. And one of the things, the top priority of a king is that he was literally, you can read this in Deuteronomy 17. He was literally supposed to sit down and write out a copy of the Mosaic Law for himself. And you know what happens in that process is that this king is face to face with the charter that he is supposed to, to govern the people with. And in doing that, he would shepherd them in righteousness. And so we need a king. And when you, so this is the book of Judges. When you get to first Samuel, God raises up King David. And so he shepherds God's people in the integrity of his heart, Psalm 119 says. And so in between this book of we have no king and we need this king who will shepherd God's people, he comes in First Samuel. In between those books, we find that God was working in history to raise up King David. And what's beautiful about this is that God was at work in history at a time when people were not doing his will. And it shows us then that God's work in history was his gracious activity. And I know that because again, Ruth chapter 1 verse 1, and now we'll stick with the text. In those days when the judges governed, there was a famine in the land. If I'm looking at my clock and I'm noticing where am I at in the judges cycle here, if there's a famine in the land, they are under God's discipline. And what they're supposed to do under God's discipline is repent And then God will restore the blessing. But Israel had not done that at this time period. So at a time period in history, when the nation was not walking with God, this is where the story of Ruth is set. All right, so now we're going to walk through the text here. And uh, I'll give you a visual so you know where we're at. Um, You can see Jerusalem here. Uh, Excuse me, yeah. You see the pink and then like the slate blue there. You see Benjamin. You see Jerusalem is in the pink And then below that is Bethlehem. That's where the story is set. But they go to Moab, which is on the other side of the Dead Sea, uh, to spend a certain number of years there. So there's your map to kind of let you know where we are. And we're moving from hopeless to hope. I'm just going to advance. I hope I don't go too far. Uh, that will take us for a while, so I don't have to keep doing this. How's that? Um, so, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah. He went down to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. And that could look kind of harmless. In fact, there's some irony here. Uh, there's a famine in Bethlehem. <laughs> Bethlehem means house of bread. <laughs> so, they open the bread box, and the bread box is empty. And so this man decides they will move to Moab. Now, that looks very harmless to us. You could look at that and say, here's a guy who's faithfully caring for his family. The problem is, the way you get food when you don't have food in Israel, the problem is a sin problem, which is why they had a famine. So they as a nation needed to seek the Lord. The answer is not to run away from God's discipline. The answer is to submit to God's discipline. And so uh, having that historical background lets you know that this is a bad move. You're not supposed to go to Moab. In fact, the Moabites worshipped Chemosh... And Baal and Ashtaroth, these pagan deities, they would burn their children in the fire in sacrifice to these gods. This is not a place to take your family and raise your children. Well, uh, his name, this man, verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech. And this is ironic, too, because Elimelech, let me break this down, El is God... And if there's the I on the end of that, it means my God, Eli, my God. And Melech is king. (laughs) So his name is, my God is king. (laughs) And my God is king is going to commit treason. Because he's running from the discipline of God and he's going to act outside the will of God. So his name is Elimelech and he betrays his name. He has two sons. His, His sons' names were Malon and Kilion. And uh, one of those, malon means sickly, and kilion means dying. And this is not some weird thing like, okay, one book said that this means that, and like, oh, I don't know, is it really there? No, like that's what the names really meant, okay? Now, uh, <laughs> you're thinking, what a terrible thing to name your children. And uh, most likely, most likely, they didn't think the kids would make it. Infant mortality rate was pretty high. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, uh, that Naomi would open the door and say, Sickly, dying, come for supper. Uh, it's probably that when they saw them, that's how they saw them, as one is sickly and one is dying. Not necessarily that that's what they called them when they tucked them into bed at night. Okay, so Malon and Kilion. And what happens here, they go down, verse 2, they entered the land of Moab and they remained there. And a problem occurs, verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. And this could look like a coincidence, natural causes. We're not given the coroner's report here in verse 3. But when you come down to verse 12, or excuse me, verse 13, Naomi says that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She understands this as God's disciplinary judgment. This family had run from the discipline of God, and God's arm is longer than you can run. Uh, his discipline reached them where they were. This man betrayed his name, and and uh, it's set forth as an act that you know it's an act of judgment. Well, these two sons are left with Naomi, and things just go from bad to worse. Uh, she is widowed, and then she becomes childless. Verse 5, Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Now, I skipped verse 4, and I shouldn't have done that. These two sons took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth, and they lived about 10 years. So they're married about 10 years, and then the sons died. Um, notice that they're called Moabite women. And we read that and it's kind of like, okay, you know, meet so-and-so. They're from this country. Now, it's not just giving you a geographical location. There's a problem here. And I'll read this to you from Deuteronomy chapter 23. I think it's verse 8. Uh, Deuteronomy 23. And let me put these on. Um, Yeah, it's verse 3. No Ammonite... Or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. And then he gives the reason why. But the point is, is that God had made this judgment, pronounced this judgment against Moabites. And they were not allowed to become part of God's people. So this is a problem. In Deuteronomy 7, it says, Don't let your children marry people inside the land of Canaan. And it wasn't a racial thing. It was a belief system thing. That unbelievers, marrying believers, is not a good thing because these foreign wives would take them away from the Lord. And so this is just a tragedy when you open the text. This family is running from the disciplining hand of God. God disciplines us because he loves us to turn us back to him. And not only is that going on, but you also see this where they, they marry contrary to God's will. And now the sons are dead and all of this seems to be God's judgment against this family. And so um, Naomi is going to say farewell to her daughters-in-law. You can see this in verses 6 and following. She arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. And here we are. It's dark, but a shaft of light comes through. Listen to the text. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. Hmm. So they've come out of the judgment cycle. There's kind of some good news from home. And so she's going to make her way back home. Verse 7, she departed from the place where she was, her two daughters-in-law with her. They went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And I'm just going to summarize this because I'm going through the whole book. Don't be scared. And, uh, and, and she says, look, uh, you, there's no need for you to go with me. Your families are here. You just stay here. And uh, in fact, uh, she, she says in the text here, I'd have to, to look at each verse to find it. Yeah, verse 12, she says, there, there's no hope for me. She is hopeless. She says, look, okay, how would this work? And the way the law was set up is, if your husband died, you could marry their brother that was living. And that would raise up a descendant for the dead brother. And they called it Leverite marriage. And, And what Naomi says is, look, I don't have any more sons. There's no options for you. And she said, even if I got married today and had a child... Would you all stick around and wait on that child to grow up and then marry that child to have, to have sons? So uh, she sees this as hopeless. And what happens is uh, Orpah kisses Naomi. She kisses her goodbye. She walks off the pages of Scripture never to be seen again. Ruth, on the other hand, she commits herself to Naomi. Look with me in verse 15. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. I have to pause here for just a second. Uh, you've probably seen this on wedding cakes or anna, or uh, not anniversaries. I guess you could do that too. Uh, or on announcements. We had this on our wedding announcement. And and it's it's endearing and it's great. It's actually Ruth talking to Naomi. So it's a daughter-in-law and her mother-in-law. You don't have anniversaries to celebrate that relationship, do you? <laughs> but not only that, uh, you know, the, and it is a sweet thing, and I'm not, you know, I'm not making fun of it. We had it on our announcement, but it's really about Ruth and her commitment, not just to Naomi, but we're going to find it's her commitment to Naomi's God. That she had come to faith in the living God through this family in spite of their testimony. And, uh, and she was trusting in him. So she says in verse 16. Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. This is big. Your people shall be my people. She was identifying herself with the people of Israel. Who was God's people. She was identifying herself with the God of Israel. And then she says. Your God shall be my God. This is beautiful. Somehow through interaction with this family. She came to faith in the living God. It gets even better. Verse 17. Where you die I will die. And that's where I will be buried. And this isn't just an extreme statement of resolved. I'm going to die there and be buried there. This statement is. Hence at her hope. And let me explain that. Do you remember when Abraham buried Sarah in the land of Canaan? God had promised, Abraham, to you and to your descendants, I'm giving this land forever. And we're told that when Sarah died, Abraham didn't own any land. So he bought a piece of ground inside the land of Canaan. And he buried Sarah in the land with hopes that she would be resurrected to live in the land. If God's giving it to them forever, there's this hope of the resurrection. And it builds as you move through the Old Testament till you get to Daniel 12. And God says that your people who lie in the dust are going to resurrect to everlasting life. And so you have this belief in the resurrection. And that's why Sarah was buried in the land. That's why Abraham was buried in the land. That's why Isaac was buried in the land. Jacob moves down to Egypt. And he says, you've got to promise me, Joseph, that when I die, you will carry me back to the land to bury me with my fathers. And then Joseph made Israel promise him, his brothers and his family, uh, that when I die, he says, 400 years from now. God's going to visit you and bring you out of slavery. And when he does, take my bones with you. They wanted to be buried in the land because they believed they would be resurrected to live in the land. They had an eternal hope based on the word of God. And when Ruth says, where you die, that's where I want to die. And that's where I want to be buried. She is hinting that her hope is in the living God. And she has identified herself with Israel's hope. That becomes even more clear as we move along. Well, Nathan Nathan, Rumi, (laughs) that's what happens when you blend them together. Slow down. (laughs) Southerners are supposed to talk slow, aren't they? (laughs) Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem. Verses 19 through 21. They both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they'd come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Naomi, by the way, means pleasant. This is Mrs. Pleasant. And, and listen to her. It's kind of like, wow, I think you need a nap and a good meal and maybe some coffee. She says, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me Pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter because the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. She's mad at the way God has dealt with her. And, and it's interesting because in all of this, God was not against Naomi. God God is a God of truth, and, and because Israel had disobeyed him, he sent the, the famine on the land, that was supposed to turn them back to him. Because they continued in the land of Moab, that's why Elimelech died, yes, and Malon and Kilion, yes, but God wasn't against them. And God is already at work on Naomi's behalf, and she doesn't even know it. Uh, isn't it true that sometimes we get upset with the things that God allows And we don't know that behind the scenes, God is at work accomplishing His purposes. She says, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. She's been uh, bereft of her family. She says, why do you call me Naomi or Pleasant since... The Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. <laughs> and uh, I've, that's a kind of a, not a good conversation starter. I wonder next time, instead of asking her how she's doing, they're just like, hello, Naomi. <laughs> Keep walking. <laughs> Naomi returned and with her, Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And this is setting the stage again because now there's grain. Something good is getting ready to happen. God is at work here. Let's go to the next slide. I call this Hope Dawning. And uh, I'll skip ahead a little bit here. I think I'll take a chance and go one more slide. Okay, so back in time for the barley harvest. We just read that. And and we move into chapter 2. You know, this is setting the stage. Like, they're home in time for the harvest. How is this going to work? Look at me in chapter 2, verse 1. Naomi had a kinsman of her husband a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Well, why do I need to know that? Can't, can't the author just tell us that they were back home in time for grain, Ruth went out in the field and got some grain, and they're no longer hungry? But the story is not about that, is it? The story is about something bigger. And a kinsman is what you would call a kinsman-redeemer. And the way it worked is, if someone was in a desperate situation, whether they had uh, sold themselves into slavery out of their poverty, or they had had to sell their land to someone out of dire straits, uh, or or a situation where they needed someone to marry them and raise up seed or a child for the dead, uh, this kinsman redeemer could do this. had to be someone who's related to them. That's why it's called a kinsman. And he had to also have the wherewithal to accomplish this redemption. And and what the author's doing is he's saying, hey, you see where this is going? He's winking at you again. Uh, he says Naomi has a kinsman, and he's a man of great wealth. Maybe maybe this guy could do this. Maybe he could be the redeemer that we need to to solve the problem in the story. Verse two, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, "Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor." And this is really interesting too. Um, Why did Ruth have this idea of gleaning in the field? And those of you who are farmers, uh, it doesn't work that way. To where you know, I'm driving by the Curtis farm and I'm like, "Hey, there's some corn. I think I'll go pick some corn." Now, if I asked the Curtis's, they would probably let me have some corn. (laughs) But you don't just go help yourself, do you? But in Israel, God had set up a system, and it's it's stated in the Law of Moses... ...that if there are widows and strangers, meaning those living in Israel... ...who come from different countries and they don't own land... uh, ...widows or strangers or orphans, those that are in a desperate situation... God told those who owned the land, he said, when you harvest your grain, don't harvest the corners of your field. Leave that for the poor and the widow and the stranger among you. And so it was God's system to care for those that were in need. Now, Ruth knew about that. You know what's amazing about that? It shows that Ruth was aware of the word of God. This lady had become a believer and she knew something about the God of Israel and what he said in the law of Moses. And so she wants to act on this. Now, they say that you could tell someone's spirituality based on the size of the corners of their field. And you know what I mean by that? If God says, leave the corner of the field for the widows and strangers... You know, if I take and I leave like literally this much of a corner where maybe there's one stalk of grain that can grow in that little tiny space of ground. I'm keeping the law, but I'm not really doing this the way God wants. If if the corners of my field are large, uh, then, boy, I'm really in sync with what God wants to do. And that's where Boaz is. So um, verse 2, she goes, to, or verse 3, she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come. Did she just happen to come there? Now, this is God's providence. I'll, I'll say a word about that. Providence is where God works through seemingly natural circumstances. In fact, it's, it's separate from a miracle because a miracle is when God suspends the laws of nature. Where God does something supernatural or above the natural. But providence is where God works through seemingly natural circumstances. Uh, the book of Esther, it just so happened that the king could not sleep on a certain night. And he just so happened to open the books to the right place and read about Mordecai and all this stuff. We know it wasn't just happened. And we know that Ruth didn't just happen to end up there. But if you would have asked her, why did you choose this field? She would probably say, I don't know, I just chose this field. But God was at work. And so, uh, verse 3 again, she, she departed. She happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. And the author tells us again this is Mr. Eligible. He says he was of the family of Elimelech. And uh, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Okay, so I got to tell a story. This, this, I won't take too long. Uh, this, honestly, I thought I'd cry, but I'm not going to. Uh, December 12th, 1999 today 's December twelfth I met April Oberholzer at Corinth Baptist Church, and when this family took me there, they had intentions of introducing us and I... Yeah, wow, okay. <laughs> it's a big deal. You know, I I, I kind of hate to be gone today, but I planned this trip, and I like, oh, I'm gone. Um, but anyway, it was Pastor Appreciation Day that morning, and I was associate pastor at my home church. Every lady in the church gave me a hug. I had makeup all over this white shirt. <laughs> and so we're going to Sunday night at April's church, and, and this family said... Um, we're going to stop at a department store. And we're going to buy you some clothes. <laughs> and you can change in the van. <laughs> so they bought me the sweater that I wear every year on December 12th. No. <laughs> and uh, anyway, you know, we go in. And it's called A Christmas to Remember. And, and the, the auditorium is just full. And we're looking for a place to sit. And, uh, and, and the pastor said, if there's an empty seat, you know, raise your hand. So somebody raises their hand. We sit down. And, and our eyes get adjusted to the dark. And lo and behold, right in front of us was April Oberholzer. That's who we came to see. And there she was. And, uh, you know, just, it, it was more than just we happened to sit in the seat. All right. And that's Ruth going to the fields of Boaz. Well, I'll come back to that story in a few minutes. So, so verse 4, Boaz came and he greets his workers. And, and in verse 5, he says to his servants who's in charge of the reapers, he says, whose young woman is this? Uh, and it, I don't think it's like, hey, who's that? Uh, you know, this is a romance of redemption, some call it. Uh, the attraction that Boaz has to Ruth is because of her godliness. And you'll read that as to, if you read the whole text. Um, but he notices her. And they said, okay, she's um, she's the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. Do you catch this picture here? Ruth the Moabitess, the Moabitess, the Moabite woman from the land of Moab. Here's the woman who doesn't belong. She shall never come into the congregation of the Lord to the tenth generation. This woman has no place with God's people. That's what the law said. All right. So this is interesting. <laughs> well, verse seven, he he says, um, please let or excuse me. She said to Boaz. Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. And she, I'm sorry. The servant's telling Boaz what she asked. And so he gave her permission. Well, Boaz goes to talk to her. Verse 8. Listen carefully, my daughter. Don't go glean in another field. Don't go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field where they reap and go after them. Indeed, I've commanded the servants not to touch you. When you're thirsty, go get some water. They're going to take care of you. Verse 10, look at her humility. She knows that she doesn't deserve this kindness. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? I don't belong here. Well, Boaz replied, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. Now, here's where it gets good. Notice that her reputation had preceded her she was known as a godly woman in fact she had shown this kindness to naomi and this is really cool because when she shows this kindness she's showing chesed in hebrew which speaks about god's nature and his character she had learned about the character of god and she was showing that character to others and so uh, again she you know boaz says i've heard about your kindness And uh, verse 12, may the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel. And this is where we get the picture, full picture. Under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Did Ruth come to faith in the living God? Yes, she had taken refuge under his wings. That's a metaphor. That's a picture of how Jesus said, how many times I would gather you under my wings like a mother hen does her chicks. That Ruth had come to take refuge in the shelter of Yahweh, the God of Israel. She had come to faith in him. And so it's a beautiful picture there. Um, well, what's going to happen here then is that, you know, boy meets girl, it's going to keep moving ahead. Um, where am I at in my PowerPoint here? So, uh, 17 and following, Ruth goes back home, and she tells Naomi about what happened. Verse 17, she gleaned in the field until evening. She beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And uh, I'll have to do the, the math here again on that. I think I've got notes on this. Uh, an ephah of barley no i didn 't write this down, I, um, so yeah, some of you with study Bibles. You have that. I had it somewhere, and i can 't see it thirty pounds okay so so imagine that like this is not just a bowl of oatmeal that she comes home with. okay She comes home with the with the goods, so this is a major deal. God is providing. For this family. And, uh, and, and his generosity. Boaz's generosity is a testimony of how he's going to be treating them. Um, so then verse 18. She took it up and she beat it out. Uh, what you know, what she would gleaned. She gave it to Naomi. And then her mother-in-law verse 19 said. Where did you glean today? And uh, where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. And what she recognizes is. Whoever's filled you gleaned in. They had big corners in their field. This is a spiritual person. This is a godly man. And this is really cool. <laughs> she said, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. She has no clue that he's a kinsman. She just knows his name. And so notice what Naomi says. May he be blessed to the Lord, uh, who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Again, Naomi said to her, the man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. She's saying, Ruth, don't you get it? (laughs) He could be the redeemer. He could be the one that marries you and raises up seed on behalf of the dead. This could be God's answer to the dilemma that we find ourselves in. And so she's excited about this. All right, so going back to Corinth Baptist Church. um, (laughs) So April's mom and dad were with her. And I didn't know that this exchange happened. Okay, I'm in the seat behind them. But they, you know, we sat down. We see that April's right there, and we're pretty amazed at this. And and uh, and they said, you know, shake five people's hand and tell them Merry Christmas. This is like that meet and greet time. So April shakes my hand, and we're both like, you know, and uh, and then she turns back around. But I didn't know that this happened until later. Uh, but as soon as we sat down, her mom, or excuse me, April said, I, "I'm not kidding you. You can ask her. She'll quote this." April said, "Who's that good-looking guy back there?" And uh, and her mom said, "I don't know. Drop your bulletin and have him pick it up." <laughs> and so her name is Norma. I call her Naomi sometimes because uh, she was playing matchmaker here, and that's what Naomi does. Naomi says, "Okay, here's what you need to do." And Naomi counsels her to go to the harvest to the to the grain floor where they where they thresh the grain and what they would do. They would, they would beat the grain on a grain floor. Sometimes they would drive a piece of equipment over it, a sledge. And it would separate the the heads of grain from the stalks. And they would throw it up in the air and the wind would blow right away the chaff and the wheat would remain. And, and they're doing this. There's this threshing floor in chapter 3. And Naomi tells Ruth to go there. And basically the way this works is she's supposed to somehow wake up Boaz when he's asleep and she pulls the covers off of his feet. Uh, maybe that would cause him to wake up or to get cold or whatever. Some people read some things into this that they shouldn't, if you're familiar with this story. Some people say there was something going on. Uh, this is a man and woman of integrity. There's nothing going on here. This is a culturally appropriate way of going about things. And so Naomi was playing matchmaker. Now, it's kind of funny. Uh, April was teaching cubbies in Awana for this. Uh, and, and one of the kids in her group was my friend's son. And so anyway, April's mom was like, who was that guy that was at church last night? This is on Monday. And I don't know if, like, April's parents were ready to... Push the bird out of the nest, <laughs> but, but uh, they were asking about this, and April's like, I don't know, like if he was there to meet me or just, you know, like, hey, this is our friend, say hello. Um, and so April's like, I don't know, and and her mom says, well, you need to call Marcy and find out. And April's like, I'm not going to call Marcy, that's just awkward. And uh, so. But April said, but I'm going to work. Over there is the cubby folder if you want to find her number. <laughs> so, so Marcy called Norma, Naomi. And Naomi, Norma, uh, you know, talked to my friends. And they're like, yeah, you need to have Scott call her. So the rest is history. Uh, but that's kind of what Naomi does here. But, uh, but again, she's, she's not just thinking like a romance here. She's thinking security, carry on the family name. And so that's what she's doing here. Well, um, hope materializing, that's chapter 3. I'm sorry, I just said most of that. She's seeking redemption for Ruth. She tells in so many words that she wants Boaz to be a redeemer. And what Boaz says in chapter 3, this is pretty incredible. Uh, he says in chapter 3, verse 11, verse 10, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You've shown your last kindness. There's that chesed. ...to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. And the point is this. Um, She could find anybody to marry. She's not just looking to get married. She wants to carry on the family name. And there's more to it than just we always want to have a little Keen. So Wiley Keen Sr., Wiley Keen Jr., Wiley Scott Keen, John Wiley Keen. We're not just carrying on the name... But God was going to raise up a Messiah from Israel's seed. And he was going to come from the tribe of Judah. And so you don't want to lose a family in the tribe of Judah. There's probably some significance going on there. And so anyway, verse 12, he says, It's true that I'm a close relative. However, there is a relative that is closer than I am. And so Boaz had done his homework, hadn't he? Boaz knew I am eligible, but there is someone who's Mister more eligible than I am, and he knew about that. So he he tells her what to do: go to the city gates. This is where official business is attended to, and we'll see how it goes. So he says, "Don't worry; one of us will redeem you. You will be a redeemed woman." And so that's the plan. I want to move us over to chapter four. Boaz's desire to redeem. Verse 1 of chapter 4, Boaz went up to the gate and sat down, and the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. This is so ironic. I love this. Deuteronomy, I believe it is, it's either Leviticus or Deuteronomy, that says, if there's a man in Israel who won't perform this duty of raising up seed for the dead, may his name be forgotten in Israel. What's this guy's name? We don't know. Mr. So and so. You see that? That's pretty cool. So, God kept his word there. So, Mr. So and so, uh, uh, he's this relative. He says, Turn aside, friend, and sit down. He turned aside and sat down. He took 10 men of the elders of the city, got these witnesses. This is like official. This would be like a notary public. This is official business. Um, He took the closest relative and said, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land that belonged to her brother, to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it for yourself before these people here, before the elders of the city. If you'll redeem it, great, but if not, tell me, and I'll redeem it. And Boaz said, only know this. And the guy says, okay, I'll redeem it. I'm in. And Boaz says, did I did I tell you? I might have forgot this part. Boaz said on verse, in verse 5, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased over his inheritance. And the relative says, I can't redeem it for myself because I jeopardize my own inheritance. And so he doesn't want to mess with this. He's not going to play the part. And of course, that's great because we already know Boaz and we're on his side. And this is the way the story's supposed to go. Uh, verse 7, uh, this was the custom in former times when there was exchange of land to confirm this matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative says, buy it for yourself. And he took off his sandal. <laughs> so you imagine this. You go home that day and your wife is like, where's your sandal? Well, I turned down a piece of property, but don't worry. I would have had to get Ruth the Moabitess too. Um, so that's the way the deal was exchanged. And, um, and there are these witnesses to testify to this. So verse 10, he says, Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birth You are witnesses this day. And so everybody says we are witnesses. And what you find is Naomi had been emptied at the beginning of the story. She is filled at the end of the story. And God has turned around her circumstances. We're going beyond that, but I am almost done here. Um, Verses 7 through 22, I've read most of that. I want to go down to verse um, 12, excuse me, verse 11. The people who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. Why mention these names? This is a blessing that's being pronounced. Rachel and Leah were the matriarchs of the nation of Israel. That God built the nation through these women. And so, in essence, the blessing that they pronounce on her is, May God continue to build His plan through you, just like God built His plan through them. Not just Rachel and Leah, but then also, May you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez. Whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord gave you by this, or will give you by this woman. And this is interesting because we're told about Perez and Tamar. I'll come back to that in just a minute. But they're connecting Ruth with the line of David. And God is building his plan through this woman who had no place in the people of God. Because it doesn't come by deserving, it comes by God's grace. And all through the story, the author will not let us forget that she doesn't belong. I'm going to read this again. Chapter 1, verse 4, Moabite women. Verse 22 of chapter 1, the Moabitess. Chapter 2, verse 2, the Moabitess. Verse 6, Moabite woman from Moab. Verse 10, I am a foreigner. Verse 21, Ruth the Moabitess chapter 4, verse 5, Ruth the Moabitess, verse 10, Ruth the Moabitess. We're just told over and over, she she doesn't belong, she's not allowed to get in, she's not allowed to, she's a stranger. And God chose to work through her because God accomplishes His work by His grace. That's a beautiful picture. And, and uh, so you see this, and she's being connected with this line. And then verse 14, The woman said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. Sons provided for their parents when their parents got old. And, and a widow knew that if she was a widow, her sons would care for her. And to have a son was golden because that was your security. And she has no sons, but notice what they say. For you, for your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons. Isn't that incredible? Seven sons is the picture of ultimate blessing. Job had seven sons, and uh, Ruth is better than seven sons. So God is working through her. Naomi took the child, verse sixteen, laid him in her lap, and became his nurse. And this is basically picturing that that it's like it's Naomi's child, even though you know it's not Naomi's child. The neighborhood women gave her a name saying gave him a name saying a son who's been born to Naomi they named him Obed and then it's kind of like oh yeah did I mention this his name is Obed the father of Jesse the father of David and then he gives you the genealogy of David these are the generations of Perez uh, Perez from to Hezron Hezron to Ram Ram to Menadab Menadab to nation, to Salmon to Boaz to Obed to Jesse to David Okay, so I'm going to wrap this up here and make some connections for you. Uh, There's this movement from hopelessness to hope. And we find hope when we recognize that God is active in his story. You see in the story the thing that made the difference? The Lord visited his people and gave them grain. It's God showing up to do something. And it's God working providentially behind the scenes to make sure that Ruth gets to the right field. And to make sure that this works out between them and that Boaz becomes the redeemer. And and what I find here is that God visited them and he gave them grain. That's his activity. And we see God providentially working to provide redemption. Boaz is the one who can do this. And God was providentially working to raise up a king for Israel. So listen, this is huge. It it was personal that God was taking care of an individual family. But what God was doing was bigger than just taking care of an individual family. He was, through that activity, raising up King David. And that is a big piece in God's overall plan. So uh, he was doing more than just one thing here. But now we have Christmas in Bethlehem, take two. And I really am almost done, so don't worry. Um, But, you know, there was another king born in Bethlehem, wasn't there? Yes, there was. And that's the one that we know about most commonly. I'm going to take you to Luke chapter 1 for just a second to see a couple of verses here. And the language of these verses echoes the book of Ruth. In Luke chapter 1, God visited His people. We just saw that in Ruth. And this is Zechariah's prophecy when it's told that Zechariah is going to be the forerunner of Messiah. Luke chapter 1, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited us and He has accomplished redemption for His people. And so God has visited. God's activity in history gives hope, yes. And God has brought a Redeemer. This is huge. This is like a whole series, okay? And I'm going to say it in like two minutes here. Um, But the whole Redeemer concept had to be a kinsman. Hebrews chapter 2 says that Jesus became like his brothers. And he defines that as taking on humanity. So that he could bring many sons. idea is many sons and daughters unto glory. The picture is God stepped down from heaven. We sang about this. That there are forever changes where God wrote himself into the story. God took upon flesh so that he could be a kinsman redeemer. And that redeemer... Uh, he chose to redeem us, and the price of our redemption was not X amount of shekels of silver. But First Peter says, you've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without spot or blemish. There was a personal cost to him. In fact, uh, when you look at the book of Revelation, uh, John sees a lamb standing that had been slain. And the picture is, in eternity, the Lamb of God will bear the marks of His suffering. That will be the only scar in heaven will be His. Because He wrote Himself into the story to redeem us from our sin. God brought a Redeemer. God was at work in history to raise up the King of His choice. The angel said to Mary that the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father, David. And he will reign over the house of Israel forever. And what I love about this is it was bigger than Naomi and Ruth. God was at work to provide grain for them, but it wasn't just the food. God was at work to raise up King David. And the way the book of Ruth is sandwiched between Judges and Samuel is showing us that in the dark days of Israel's history... When they were not walking with God, God in his grace was providentially at work to raise up a shepherd who would shepherd Israel after his integrity of his heart. But David, godly as he was, he was not the Messiah. He was a sinner just like you and I. And God was not only at work in the fields of Boaz to give us David, he was at work to give us Jesus Because Matthew chapter 1 shows us that Jesus comes from Judah and Tamar and from Ruth and Boaz. And what I love about this is it shows God's work in history to bring the Savior. But This is even more beautiful. Look at the people that God used to bring us the Savior. You know what Tamar did? Tamar saw that she was, she was married to Judah's son. Judah's son died. She married his second son. And he died. Judah had a third son. And, and Tamar's thinking, we've got to keep the seed alive. You know why? Because the Savior's coming from Israel. We don't know what tribe. If we lose a tribe of Israel, we could lose it all. She dresses up like a prostitute to deceive her father-in-law, Judah, Who hires her as a prostitute. And becomes pregnant by Judah. And then she betrays the fact that she's with child from Judah. And from Judah comes Perez. And long story short from that family comes Boaz. And from Boaz and Ruth comes Jesse and David and Jesus. God did his work in history through less than ideal circumstances Using less than perfect people. That's how he brought his son into the world. And now you and I are responsible to take the message of that Savior out into the world. And God is using less than ideal people. In less than ideal circumstances. To proclaim that that Savior has come. That's his grace. I love the book of Ruth. Because the people who didn't belong. They got it. (laughs) Salvation is by grace. Not of works. Lest any man should boast. And so you see God's activity in history here. God, was, God is at work in history right now to accomplish his purposes. And in his good time, the king will return. And we'll finally have the peace that we're waiting on. And there'll be no more COVID. And there'll be no more political chaos. And everybody hating everybody and posting mean things on Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that. And it'll be great when we get there, but not until he comes. So principles and application... And I'm landing the plane. Ruth married Boaz. I married April. (laughs) All right, it's a good day. God works his plans even in the darkest of times, he's never distant, even though circumstances may give that impression. God works through less than ideal circumstances to accomplish his purposes. And because of the nature and character of God, what He has promised, He we all and, and what He has promised, we always have reason for hope. One other thing I'm going to say, and then I'm going to quit. Um, the Old Testament is always pointing ahead towards Christ. And the New Testament talks about what He did and looks back and also looks ahead as well. But in Deuteronomy, this is pretty amazing. I, I just learned this this summer, or this fall, so i got to share it. In Deuteronomy, chapters 16 and 17 talks about the qualifications and the way a judge is supposed to govern. In Deuteronomy 17, the way a king is supposed to function. In Deuteronomy 18, the way a priest is supposed to function. And later in Deuteronomy 18, how a prophet is supposed to function. These are the leaders of Israel that are to, to basically make it possible for God's blessing to come on God's people. Well, think about how the Old Testament unfolds. The failure of the judges in the book of Judges. The failure of the priesthood at the beginning of 1 Samuel. The failure of the kings throughout the kings. The toleration of false prophets in the kings and chronicles and through the prophets. And all of this shows us that Israel failed on every level. And that means unless God sends somebody perfect... We have no hope. And Jesus came as this new Moses, Deuteronomy 18, this one who spoke exactly the word of God. He's the final prophet. In these last days, Hebrews 1, God has spoken to us by his son. And he's a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he is the king of the Jews. And he is going to execute justice in the land as a perfect judge. Isaiah chapter 11. Everything that Israel was not. And everything that you and I are not. He is for us. He is our Savior. And so we rejoice in his birth. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you were at work in history, God. What an amazing story uh, that, that you were at work in history When Ruth just so happened to go to the fields of Boaz, and you just so happened to work through that, God, thank you for your providence. Thank you, Lord, that you are writing history. And God, thank you even more that you wrote yourself into history. That you came here and lived among us as a man, so that as a man you could die for us and make it to where we could become the sons and daughters of God. Thank you, Lord, for the salvation history that we have. And thank you, Lord, for for those of us and all of us. uh, We do not deserve grace. Grace cannot be deserved, and you've shown it to us through your Son. We thank you in his name. Amen.